Please be seated if you would. Good morning. Hope you're all well today and uh, you look good. I don't know how you're feeling, but you look good and at least it's cool as they say. So I hope you sense the presence of Christ here. I'm Tom Nelson and we're just really glad you're here. Uh, and I hope your summer is going well with all the vacations and things like that. Uh, hope it's a little bit restful. Well, one of the new adventures uh, of Liz and my life is uh, welcoming a little one into our home. Actually, his name is Harley. And uh, hard to imagine this beast of a guy that looks like a polar bear, actually, uh, is only four months old. Um, and as a gold doodle, he uh, loves to hang out. I think, is there, yeah, there's a picture, a little more friendly Harley there. And uh, Harley is uh, amazingly curious. He's a curious about everything. Uh, there's not a square inch of our backyard or our house he has not explored. He's not smelled, he's not tasted or chewed on, right? And what I've learned is Harley trusts us completely. And he just loves being with us. Uh, there's no strangers to Harley. He delights in everyone he meets. He's just a big furball, a boundless energy and unending affection. And having Harley in our lives, yes, is a new adventure, but it's enriched our lives. And uh, it's freshly reminded me about my own life, what I want my life to be about. Uh, things like insatiable curiosity or a sense of gentleness, a sense of trust, a sense of friendliness and openness. And Harley has reminded me in a very powerful way how the smallest ones in our midst can be our biggest teachers. In our text this morning, Jesus reminds us of this truth as well. And if you brought a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. Now, as a church family, we've been exploring the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, we looked at chapter 17. It was here where three of Jesus' disciples, remember this, Peter, James, and John, had this unforgettable moment, this mountaintop experience. And they get this dazzling glimpse of the glory of Jesus in his full divinity. But now, yes, they have come down from the mountain to the valley below. And just ahead of them, just around the corner, a Roman cross awaits Jesus. Now, throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew has had a common thread of a theme. And that theme is, what is the good life, the truly good life, how is it experienced, and how is it found? So here in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus points all of us, all who desire to experience the truly good life he offers, to pursue a paradoxical path to one of childlike faith. Now, if you have been with us and you have studied the literary terrain of Matthew, you'll notice that Matthew loves to pave the literary terrain he uh, lays out for us with irony and paradox. And let's remember, paradox is a literary device where something at first glance seems absolutely impossible. But then when we look more closely at it, we actually realize it is true. And in our text this morning, Matthew brilliantly weaves together two paradoxes of childlike faith. So let's take a closer look at the first paradox. 
The first paradox in this text is that the way up is down. The way up is down. Chapter 18, you'll notice, begins with a revealing question. The disciples come to Jesus and they ask him this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, as readers, often we might see this as a sort of innocuous, innocent, and harmless question, at least on the surface. But the gospel writer Mark, who highlights this story as well, looks under the surface at a rather more murky, sinister motive that's hanging out there in the disciples' hearts. Mark tells us in the ninth chapter of his gospel that shortly after this heady experience on the mountain, the disciples come down after they had seen Jesus in his glory and talking to Moses and Elijah. That's heady stuff, at least for Peter, James, and John. And they begin this robust, the text says, a robust, drawn-out argument. And the argument is about who is the greatest. And Mark chapter 10 tells us, and don't miss this, that it is James and John, remember they were up on the mountain, who seem to be jockeying for position, particularly in a position of power in Jesus' future kingly administration. So when we combine Mark's account and Matthew's contextual backdrop, I think it's fair to say, at least there's a strong hunch, that the boys that had been on top the mountain with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they're stirring up things a bit. And yes, they are. They are filled with heady ambition. Now, this is not unusual. It's not just in the first century. It's really like today. Right? What's going on under the text, under these questions, is much like what the political season is like today. Now, I'm not going to go there, I promise. But there's some parallel I want you to see. Some things never change. Remember, like in the parties that uh, are running for national office, we have presidential candidates, but we also have vice president candidates. And most of the time, the VPs are like, who's that? Right? They're candidate. They're plucked from obscurity, but because they are on the ticket with the president, potentially, suddenly they're big time stuff. Suddenly they move from obscurity, the shadows of obscurity, to the limelight because they are with the president. So James and John, at least, if not Peter, have a wonderful picture floating in their brain. And underlying the question is going to be, who is the VP pick? In other words, underlying this question, who is the greatest, is really another question. And the question is, who's the top dog in your administration? Because they have this erroneous idea that the good life, the truly good life, that Jesus offers is paved with prestige and power and position. That's where they're going to experience the good life with Jesus. But Jesus thinks otherwise. Wow, does he think otherwise. And Jesus' response, you'll notice if you're following along your text in verse 2, is really stunning. Because there are very few places in all of the Gospels where Jesus not only says something, he shows it. It's show and tell time for the boys. There's something so remarkably going on that words will not shatter it alone. He takes a visual illustration. Notice verse 2. Show and tell time. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Now, if we go back to the first century, 
What Jesus does is culturally shocking. It's unthinkable. The Greek word behind the English word child here reflects a young child, like a toddler or an elementary school student. So if you're younger here, this is an amazing moment that Jesus is speaking about and elevating you if your kid's here today. Amazing. He uses this younger language for a young child. And in the first century context, children were not only not to be seen and not heard, they were not to be seen at all. They were the lowest ring on society's ladder. They didn't matter in the first century. So Jesus' actions are jaw-dropping. But what he says next is earth-shattering. Look at me at verse 3. With the strongest language, Jesus says, Truly, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is basically saying to these guys, you are so full of yourselves you can't see beyond your nose. You are completely missing it. Guys, true greatness is not something reached by climbing up the ladder of prestige and power and position. Uh-uh. True greatness heads the other direction. Jesus is saying, guys, the way up is the way down. Now, the disciples see themselves as Profound insiders. And when Jesus takes a little child and presents this child as the ultimate insider, it blows their circuits. But Jesus wants his disciples to know that the kingdom that he is bringing in, only those who have childlike faith can actually come in. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the shocked disciples is only childlike faith actually gets it right. See, childlike faith is at the very heart of greatness, Jesus says. It's the ultimate mark of greatness. It is anything but childish to have a childlike faith. What Jesus is saying is we never, never outgrow childlike faith. The more we grow up in faith, the more we grow in childlike faith. How important this truth is for many of us, especially those of us who are older, those of us who have been in the church for a long time, some of us who have studied the Bible a lot, particularly pastors who have, quote, formal theological training. We get very theologically sophisticated, kind of like the scribes and Pharisees we've heard about in Matthew, and we drift from following Jesus with childlike faith. Now, let's not forget this is not the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that childlike faith is emphasized. In Matthew chapter 11, in his priestly prayer to the Father, before he invites us to be apprentices in his yoke, this great invitation, Jesus has a conversation with his Father that is embedded in childlike faith. Verse 25 of Matthew 11, listen. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from what? the wise and understanding, and revealed them, and the picture is, to small children. Hmm. Wow. Jesus is shattering our thinking. Jesus strongly emphasizes the essential nature of childlike faith because childlike faith is the path to truly knowing him and knowing the world. 
See, we often think that cognitively, if we know things, we know more things, particularly if we know more about Jesus cognitively, we would believe more in Jesus. But actually, when we believe more in Jesus, then we will not only know more, we will know him more intimately. Children actually know more than they know they know. Or we think they know. Being around small children reminds us of this, doesn't it? Ann Taylor, who serves uh, in our children's ministry here at Leewood, is amazing. And I was having a conversation with Ann this week. Children's ministry, young children are learning a really important spiritual discipline of journaling. Yes. And she tells the story about a young five-year-old girl. The five-year-old daughter of one of the moms in our congregation is one of her mom's biggest teachers. She describes the story as a family. They've been facing some really challenging, stressful times. A new job, a new house, moving. And she overheard this precious little five-year-old, overheard her mom talking with a friend about how stressful life was and difficult it was and how scary it was and how fearful she felt. Hearing this, this five-year-old daughter of hers (laughs) dashes to her room, brings back one page ripped out of her prayer journal, five-year-old. And on this page, She had copied the scripture with these words. But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage. I am here. And this five-year-old daughter of hers had sketched a picture of this big, strong, outstretched, outstretched arm. And then written underneath it, she wrote these words. Are you worried about something today? You can put it in God's hands. Wow. We must never, ever underestimate the bigness of a small one's faith. It is not mere cognition of knowing more that leads us to greater faith. It is greater faith that leads us to knowing Jesus more. We must realize that Jesus' emphasis on childlike faith is not dismissive of a life of the mind or a posture of anti-intellectualism, quite the contrary. Jesus is not saying to follow him must somehow put our brains on the shelf and not think anymore. All through Scripture, loving God with our mind is premium stuff. So what's going on here? What Jesus is saying is the kingdom is open to all who will place their trust in him from the youngest to the oldest. In other words, Jesus doesn't require a certain number of birthdays. He doesn't require a certain level of education or a particular IQ score. The truly good life Jesus offers is a gracious gift revealed by God to young and old. It is a gift embraced by faith and not merely by intellectual knowledge or meritorious works. Jesus' words, you'll notice, repeated about the kingdom really stunned the disciples because 
Often they thought of the kingdom as just primarily a kind of righteous rule or reign, and it is that. But Jesus is saying the kingdom is not just only about a righteous reign, it is about right relationships. It's about God's desire to have a right relationship with us. And Jesus says the smallest child can know him deeply. My own spiritual journey bears this out. Imagine an eight-year-old. I wasn't quite there as this five-year-old girl I just arrived. But somehow at eight years of old, I sat in a hard pew in the small church in rural Minnesota, which is, again, God's country. And there, Jesus revealed himself to me. In ways words can never capture, then or now. The truth of the gospel found its mark in my young heart, and at that moment, loving and following Jesus became the most important thing in my life. Over the years, yes, I have gained perhaps a more sophisticated understanding of what my experience as an eight-year-old means and, and, and will mean. And while my relationship with Jesus has deepened, I have to say my questions have grown and the mystery of faith has broadened. Yet let me be very transparent. My intimacy with Jesus is no more real than when I was eight. What concerns me the most is I want to love him more now than then, but I'm not always sure I really do. See, the smallest of children have some of the most remarkable insight. They are perhaps our greatest teachers. Think with me for a moment what a child is like. If you're a child, you know this better than I do. If you're a grandparent, teacher, parent, an auntie, uncle, watch children. Children recognize they are needy, don't they? And they're not reluctant to express it. One of my favorite movies, you know, and I, I'm not recommending movies here, but it's an old movie. Bill Murray is one of my favorite comedians. It's What About Bob? I can tell you almost every line of What About Bob. I know how messed up I am. You can pray for me. There's a scene when he's a very disturbed man. And he goes to a psychiatrist, Richard Dreyfus, and he cries out to him. And he says, I need, I need, I need, I need, give me, I need. The unvarnished transparency is where all of us are before a holy God. Children know it. What I find stunning too is research in child development is increasingly pointing out that the most behavioral trait basic to an infant is not fight or flight, it is reach. <laughs> reach. Wow. See, we were hardwired for relationships. That are the very moment of conception. As we reflect, a triune God is deeply, deeply relational. Unlike adults, children are much more concerned about being in relationships than proving they are right, aren't they? Children exhibit this refreshing vulnerability, don't they? And they are open to others. And children realize more than anything else, perhaps they are dependent, they're not self sufficient. The bottom line, Jesus is saying, is that children have a tenacious trust. Learn from them what it means to follow me. That's what he's saying. Emulate their tenacious trust. Brennan Manning is a wonderful writer. 
very transparent. He has a book called Ruthless Trust, and he captures for us as adults the deep struggle we have of childlike faith because of all the junk going on in our lives. He says this, We simply do not trust that he, Jesus, can handle all that goes in our minds and hearts. He says, can he accept our hateful thoughts, our cruel fantasies, our bizarre dreams? We conclude that he cannot and thus withhold from Jesus what is most in need of his healing touch. And what Manning is saying is what Jesus is saying is that it is in childlike faith of tenacious trust where the deepest healing of our heart takes place. The deepest wounds are healed in our life. Jesus looks into the murky depths of your heart and my heart. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he loves us more. And he loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he calls you and me to follow him in childlike trust. And Jesus will say something in verse 5 that is intriguing and mysterious. I have to tell you, I do not know what he means. I know it's really important, but I can't get my hands around it. My feeble mind won't go there fully. He says, whoever welcomes the smallest child welcomes me. Later on in Matthew, chapter 25, Jesus will echo a similar thought and he will press it further out. Jesus will say we are all deemed small and by implication the young, the poor, the marginalized in the world are really, really big to him. And Jesus will say this, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you do it to me. Who are the least of these in your life? Friends at school, in your neighborhood, in our city? How do you view the least of these? Many who are vulnerable, marginalized, and virtually ignored. How are you serving them? What about the little ones in our church family? See, our church... And children's ministry is a remarkable opportunity to serve our little ones. But as adults, it is also one of the best ways for us to learn more about Jesus. We not only help children be spiritually formed and we are to teach them, they are to teach us what it means to love Jesus and walk with him. That's why we're so deeply committed intergenerational ministry at Christ Community. Evangelist Billy Graham said it great. Listen to this. This is great. He says, we say to our children, act like grown-ups. But Jesus said to the grown-ups, would you be like children, huh? Well, Jesus' disciples were scrambling to get to the top. To be top dog, Jesus points out a child and tells them, uh-uh, the top is the way down. And on the heels of this paradox, is the second one of childlike faith, and that is the way to big is small. The way to big is small. In verse 4, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, lurking in the disciples' heart. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like many of us, the disciples had a similar culture in the sense that they thought big was where it was at. If I could just be bigger, whatever that is. We think to be big, we have to be big. We think big is better, more important, more significant, more successful. We are so enamored with big, big events, big splashes, big people, but Jesus isn't. 
And Jesus says if we really want to be someone big, we have to become someone small. Disciples' prideful hearts are blinding them from embracing childlike faith. They are in dire peril. And many of us are as well. It's not the high purchase of pride. It's the small places of the human heart where bigness is truly found. Sarah Groves is one of my favorite Christian singers. She's got a line in one of her songs that is just brilliant. She says, redemption comes in strange places, small spaces. God's greatest work often takes place in the smallest crevasses of the human heart. Small spaces. Jesus is saying that bigger is not better, that smaller is better. And it's not the powerful, but the powerless. See, at the heart of Jesus is this word humility. What is humility? It's hard to define. It's easy to see. Perhaps the best description I know of humility is that it is not thinking less of ourselves. It is thinking less about ourselves. Humility takes its eyes off ourselves and puts them on God and others and keeps them there. The greatest threat to you and me Experiencing this good life Jesus has been talking about all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, the good life that he offers to us is the heart of pride. That is the greatest danger to your life and mine. The greatest obstacle to experience the good life Jesus has for you and me is pride. That's why Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the brilliant Brit, Oxford Don, Christian apologist said this, pride is the ultimate vice, the ultimate anti-God state of mind. And we see the ultimate anti-God state of mind, the ultimate vice, raise its ugly head, not only in the hearts of the disciples in verse 1, but we see it wrapped in a brilliant sandwich in Jesus' severe and ominous warning of judgment in verse 6. God has a huge two-by-four, a cosmic two-by-four, to deal with anyone's pride. Did the disciples get what Jesus was saying? Did they get it? Did they grasp the paradoxical path to the good life that Jesus is teaching? That it is paved, essentially, with childlike faith? Did they get it? In the very next chapter, in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, we have this quick snapshot. And you can look more at it this week. And it's not a pretty sight. The disciples actually rebuke people, adults, for bringing little kids to Jesus, for Jesus to bless and pray them. They actually rebuke him. <laughs> Jesus welcomes children to himself and says, they get it right, and you don't. Wow. Wow. Jesus sees the world much different than you and I do, doesn't he? See, Jesus says, even though their faith seems little, it is really big. Childlike faith is not childish faith. It is big-time faith. It's at the very heart of apprenticeship with Jesus. Dallas Willard, in his wonderful book, The Allure of Gentleness, describes the transforming nature of following Jesus. He says, the highest aim of a student of Jesus Christ is to learn to live like him in his kingdom. Let me just insert childlike faith is essential to do that. The method for learning to fully lead a spiritual life is to do what Jesus did in his overall style of life. Follow him. This appropriates the grace of God and transforms our abilities. Following Jesus means 
that we embrace the faith of a child. So how do we grow up in childlike faith? Let me suggest three responses that I think are important for all of us, particularly those of us who have been around the church a while or are older chronologically. First, we need to get smaller. Isn't it true that pride is a given, humility is a pursuit? None of us has to choose to be prideful or take the initiative to be prideful. Notice in the text, the verb is since we humble ourselves. We have a role in embracing humility. We pursue it, and we pursue it at the foot of the cross. When we admit our great sinfulness before a holy God, when we see our need for repentance, we look to Jesus to forgive us and give us new life from the inside out. The good news of the gospel is that the truly good life is available to each one of us. It is never something we can earn. It is a gift of grace given to us when we come to Jesus with childlike faith. John in his gospel has a great story of perhaps one of the brightest intellects of his time. Certainly the most credentialed was Nicodemus, one of the most brilliant teachers and rabbis of all of Israel. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. You might remember the story. And Jesus looks at Nicodemus and basically says, Nick, you got to get a lot, lot smaller. You know that perch you've been sitting on in the Sanhedrin? It's time to get down to the cradle. What you need most is childlike faith in me. Like an infant, a newborn infant, Nicodemus must be born again to even see the kingdom of God, let alone Like each one of us, Nicodemus needed to grasp that the path to bigness is getting smaller. When we get smaller, we realize we are more dependent. Getting smaller means growing tenacious in our trust and increasing joyful dependence on Jesus. John Stott, who uh, passed away not too long ago, one of the finest theologians in Britain and pastor in the 20th century, before he died, wrote his last work called The Radical Disciple, and in it, Dr. Stott says, a true mark of maturity, the characteristic mark of true maturity in Jesus is dependence. And he looks to Jesus and he says these words. Jesus himself taught that dependence grows as we grow. See, John the Baptist got it right early, didn't he? Remember John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. Let me add another thing that's important that John the Baptist doesn't say. Following Jesus means, yes, he increases and we decrease, but it means, third, others increase. It's not just that Jesus increases, we decrease, others increase. And that means we not only grow smaller, we love bigger. We love bigger. Loving arms of a child, after all, are wide open, aren't they? Reach. By design, children are open. They're vulnerable, they're transparent. Childlike faith is often expressed with the open arms of love. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. What does this love look like? It is a love of unconditional acceptance, a love of transparency, a love of vulnerability. Isn't it a tragic irony? I mean, let's be honest, as we grow older, some of us who are older here this morning know this. Our love for others grow colder. Instead of loving more, we often love less. 
Many times we are more concerned about being right than loving rightly. And often we are much more concerned about staying safe than we are willing to be uncomfortable. Yet love often leads us out of that comfort zone. What does loving bigger mean in your life and mine? First, I think it means forgiving more. Loving bigger means forgiving more. Let me ask you, who are the people or person in your life that you're struggling most to forgive? It also means serving more. Who do you need to serve? Loving bigger means praying more. Who is the Holy Spirit impressing on you? In your life, friends, spouse, grandparents, children, co-workers, to pray more for. Loving bigger means giving more in every dimension of life. Often the older we get, the more we hold on. Jesus says, open it up. Our time, talent, and yes, our treasure. What are the opportunities for you to be more generous in life that God is presenting in your life now? See, when we grow up in childlike faith, we get smaller, no doubt. We love much bigger. And lastly, we risk a whole lot more. We risk more. It is often said that to live without risk is to risk not living. I think that's right. On a human dimension, faith is a risky business, isn't it? Faith in Jesus will inevitably lead us to greater risk in all dimensions of life. The book of Hebrews reminds us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. In other words, when we can't see things, we tend to become a bit unglued. But if we see things rightly, it is the unseen things that bring all of reality together and glue it. The older we get, the more risk-averse we tend to get. We think we have more to lose. We try to hold on tighter. If we are growing in childlike faith, it should just be the opposite. The more we grow in childlike faith, the more risk we ought to be willing to take because now we know that Jesus is our good shepherd who is constantly with us, who will protect us and provide for us and never leave us. Because he's so precious and dear to us. We don't have to hold on. Just hold on to him. He's our provider, our friend, our protector. He is our good shepherd. See, when we see through the eyes of faith and live in the zone of childlike faith, we love more. We love more. We're more willing to risk in relationships. We are more forgiving of others. We come, become more generous and more generative because childlike faith is big God faith. It is God-honoring faith. It is not paralyzed by fear of failure or the fear of others' approval. Childlike faith often and seldom has a contingency plan. Jesus reminds us with even the smallest amount of childlike faith, mountains can be moved. The trajectory of human life and human history can be influenced by a child's faith. I find hope in that. With childlike faith, relationships can change. Families can change. Workplaces can change. Churches can change. Cities can change. Nations can change. 
In a time of great hopelessness, childlike faith brings us in the posture of great hope. We need just a whole lot more of childlike faith in our world. So you follow Jesus, we get smaller, love bigger, and we risk more. Let's not forget Jesus risked everything for us. He became small for us, didn't he? He left the heavenly throne room, became a little baby, absolutely vulnerable and transparent, and he reached out in that Bethlehem cave with his hands that would one day stretch out on a cross for you and me. Jesus knew the way up was down. The way to bigness was smallness. And Jesus knew those often who are deemed smallest can be our biggest teachers. Let's pray.